This is Current Yield, Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. And I'm Jim Grant, and with me, as always, is Evan Lorenz, the great deputy editor of Grant's, uh, Henry French at the control panel, and today we have William D. Cohen, the author of the latest Power Failure, Rise and Fall of an American Icon. That would be General Electric. But before we get into this um, truly wonderful book, and talk to Bill, I would like to uh, observe to Evan that uh, we finally find a central bank that is going broke and is willing to admit it, which I think is a step forward in monetary history. Well, not only willing to admit it, but might actually have to go to its a Congress and actually ask for more money. Is this the Fed? Uh, no. Uh, uh, the Fed's broke, but it likes to hide it. <laughs> this is the Riksbank, uh, the Central Bank of Sweden. I think it's the oldest one of the kind. Yeah, and it was one of the first to uh, institute a negative uh, nominal interest rate, a policy rate. It was back in 2015, maybe. And um, I guess it's not, whatever the negative policy interest rates have achieved, it's not the profitability of the instituting central bank. We can observe that. No, and in fact, even though the Fed didn't go negative, it is remarkably broke. Um, in the third quarter, in the back of its footnotes to its financial reports, it said that it had a marked market loss of $1.125 billion dollars or 1.25 uh, trillion against capital of about uh, that's 42 more, that's billion. That's more like it. I was going to say billion. A, a trillion. Uh, it, it's lost over a trillion and it has capital of about 42 billion. Huh. Well, in the private sector, what would that signify? A donut. Yeah. Uh, well, it has not been an easy year for anybody. And I'm thinking now of Elon Musk. You know, uh, Bernard M. Baruch, um, a biographical friend of mine, was wont to say that he had borne losses that would make the average married man go out and shoot himself. And uh, I think that um, I think Musk, uh, $200 billion, was it? Yeah, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, he's now in the record books, but for uh, losing the most amount of money. Um, they estimate somewhere between $180 billion to $200 billion. The, the funny thing is the number two loser was actually Masayoshi Son in 2000, who lost $59 billion. That is the CEO and founder of SoftBank. And also a sometimes sparring partner for grants. Yeah, well, they both are. Um, Bill Cohen, you have a you have a view on Elon Puck, the website that uh, not merely a website, but uh, it's a an elegant destination for the readers of uh, well wrought financial journalism. You have a, a view on Elon Musk. What do you think? Is two hundred billion dollars about right? Um, it sounds a little high. I mean, <laughs> not to quibble. Uh, I was thinking more along the lines of maybe a hundred plus billion, but, um, you know, 100 to 200 billion is probably in the range. A lot of money, even when you say it fast, I suppose, is the uh, rounding. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think that uh, every American schoolboy should aspire to, should strive to be in a position to have lost $200 billion, let us say, and still have something left to go out to lunch with. Well, you know that what they say that the best way to make a million dollars is to start with a billion. <laughs> yeah. And Elon has certainly proved that. I mean, you have to uh, say to yourself, I've, I mean, I literally, I've never seen anything like the rate of implosion of wealth when he decided to buy Twitter for $44 billion and overpay for it extensively, obviously, uh, and then it closed it at the end of October against his better wishes and judgment against his uh, sacred word right no 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 i forget he did he gave a sacred word to do the deal and then his sacred word to back out and he you know he made the decision to close the deal once he realized he was going to lose terribly in delaware court yeah. and 
and expose all of his dirty laundry. But since October 31st, Halloween roughly, uh, that's what, two plus months, he's lost the entire $31 billion of equity that was put into that deal. Isn't that the irony? He fought so hard before the deal was closed because he realized he was going to lose money. Then the instant the deal closed, he seemed to do everything in his power to destroy as much value at Twitter possible. It was almost kind of like he's rebooting the movie Brewster's Millions. You know, maybe he doesn't care about the $24 billion that he personally put in and has now lost. You'd think he'd care about his friends of Elon, those 17 or 18 individuals who put in the other $7 billion and what he's... I mean, Larry Ellison lost a billion dollars. Maybe Larry Ellison doesn't care either. It's, a, it's an incredible... I've never seen anything like it in all the years of either working on leverage buyouts or writing about them. I've never seen anything uh, like the implosion that's taken place. In well, this I don't know about that, Bill. I have just finished uh, reading most of, and I, I mean to finish every part of, Power Failure. And I would say that over a span of 115... 130 years, years now. Yeah, yeah. Um, time fly. Yeah. So, so I would say that uh, in the slow motion category of wealth destruction, I would say that... Uh, but you're talking about high-speed Wi-Fi. I'm talking about high-speed high uh, <laughs> Wi-Fi uh, implosion as opposed to dial-up implosion. I wonder, I wonder if this means that the Fed is not, as they say, done yet. We're not through yet. If, you can, if people can lose a, a billion or five billion or 200 billion and really not um, complain about it, to, like writing to um, Dear Abby, or, does that mean there's too much uh, whipped cream still in the top of the Sunday? Well, obviously, you know, he also, in addition to you know, losing the most money that anyone had ever lost. He also made the most money, right, in 2021. I mean, before the pandemic, he was worth only a mere 30 billion, Jim. And, you know, he got up to 250 uh, during the pandemic. So, I mean, I guess he's more money. He has more money than he can spend and more money than he knows how to spend and can live on. And, you know, some of his businesses, while extremely overvalued, are not kind of walking dead that Twitter is. You're not thinking of the boring company, are you? <laughs> I don't know whether it's literally boring or boring through. I know that he had a big test, uh, a, a media show he put on, uh, I think, last week yeah. out, out in L.A. Well, he's in the performance business as much as the business business. Yeah. So, but but we, we are, I mean, the, the purpose of this podcast is to talk about power failure, mm -hmm. which I mean to do starting this very instrument. Evan, will you help me lift this thing? Okay, <clears throat> this is a substantial book. However, however, it has an author-installed automatic page turn. You know what that is? Go ahead. It's a reflection me. of the quality of the, of the writing and of the storytelling. So this book weighs, I'm guessing, uh, what do you think, Evan? 25, 25 30 pounds. 25 pounds. But um, uh, thanks to the, uh, the, the author-installed page turner, it is as light as a feather. Or as my mother, my, let's see, uh, my mother's cake was heavy, but the candles made it light. Oh, that's lovely, lovely. <laughs> anyway, so, Bill, I want you to uh, tell us first how you came to decide to do this. I mean, you worked for GE Capital for two years after you got out of uh, Columbia, where you earned your Master of Business Administration, and having gone to Duke and having already uh, earned a graduate degree from Columbia, the Columbia School of Journalism. But how did you uh, decide to write about this company for which you worked those two years? Yeah, I mean, I think that I, I wouldn't have done it, but for the fact that, as you, you alluded to, there was this slow motion destruction of incredible value, uh, how this company had gone from once being the world's most respected, most valuable, uh, you know, 
Jack Welch was the manager of the century, so dubbed by Fortune magazine. Uh, so, you know, uh, and, and also, you know, uh, a technological leader uh, in the areas that it chose to focus in, uh, uh, you know, and I hadn't yet uh, um, understood uh, many of the points that you had made in Grant's Interest Rate Observer about the risks that the company had. I mean, I was probably part of the uh, the, the, the flywheel the that, that the created the yep. risk by financing <laughs> leverage by us. I mean, you have to ask yourself, uh, Jim, how can a guy who is a journalist uh, uh, covering public schools in Wake County, North Carolina, go back and get his MBA and then through that alchemy, uh, next thing you know, he's uh, capable of financing leverage buyouts. Uh, so that that that's well t- at GE Capital. So that'll tell you part maybe part of the problem. Although it, it seemed seamless and it, it it seemed to work, and I did a number of deals that were very successful. But I think the the real reason I decided uh, to do this is uh, you know twofold. One, I saw a dead body on the floor. This company, and I wanted to know how it got there. Yeah. So that <laughs> got my natural narrative uh, storytelling juices flowing. And the other thing is. Uh, you know, when I had started at GE Capital, uh, after getting my MBA at Columbia in 1987, literally a month before October 19th, 1987, so when the market fell 22.6% in one day, as you will remember, but not many, vividly, not many of us uh, besides you and I remember that so well. Uh, I was at GE Capital. I saw a grown man congregate around the Quotron machine. They, that was what they used to have back then. And, and they were in tears. Uh, and I, I started uh, in my office mate uh, was a guy named John Flannery, who went on to become the CEO yeah. of GE after Jeff Immelt. So John and I uh, have become lifelong friends. And so I had a personal connection to, to also to what was happening there. Like I, I could see the pain that John was experiencing in real time. But that was nothing compared to the pain to come. No, no, I'm talking about later, oh, much see, later see, on see. after he was CEO, okay, okay. I could see the pain. So the combination of seeing this dead body on the floor and, and having watched my friend kind of deal with what he yes, was, yes. was thrust upon him, uh, uh, brought me to the desire to want to figure out what happened to this once great company and 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 be and, and use it as sort of like a cautionary tale. I mean, if it could happen to GE, this you know the most incredible American company, it could happen to you know Apple or Google or Microsoft or any of these other supposedly great American companies. Yeah. Didn't uh, Jeff Bezos say, uh, shocking his fans, that uh, that this too shall pass? That, that I'm not sure if he anticipated the Fed with the word transitory, but certainly many things in life are transitory. Yeah, well, as Back De Gaulle said, <laughs> the graveyards are filled with indispensable men. Yeah. Hmm. Um, you know, we, we started at Grass started writing about um, uh, GE in 1990. This is during the, uh, the junk bond and real estate crack up of the late 80s and early 90s. And, uh, and uh, my uh, colleague Jay Diamond did uh, almost all of the heavy lifting and the analysis. One of the things we did was to compare uh, the balance sheet of GE in 1990 with that of GE in the depths of the depression when Gerard Swope was running it. And uh, then uh, GE was, uh, my goodness, a tower of strength, financial strength. 
and truly, you know, AAA. And uh, in 1990, it was, of course, still very much a uh, ostensible AAA. But you began to see the, uh, you know, the liniments form for what might happen if nothing changed, nothing actually changed except to become more exaggerated. And I, can we pick up the narrative about 1995? And you tell a wonderful story about uh, Gary Went, who headed GE Capital. And Gary Went was this formidable character, kind of an intuitive uh, um, uh, problem solver. You know, he came from uh, Midwest, did he not? And, uh, um, Wisconsin. Went, went to Harvard, had no idea what he was doing there, getting an MBA and uh, kind of lost and uh, watching the rich kids uh, drive around in Bentleys and uh, went to work for a couple of uh, unsavory promoters. And, but he, anyway, he, he got into GE and, and, uh, uh, and rose to the ranks by dint of his, uh, his business acumen. And tell us the story about GE and the Houston Astros. Well, you know, again, it just shows you how, how far their tentacles uh, re reached, were reaching at one yeah. point. Um, uh, they, the, the team had actually, uh, the money had been borrowed, of course, to buy the team. And Original sin. Of course. Uh, and uh, the team uh, wasn't very good and had very low attendance. And uh, By the way, they, they still stink. Oh, yeah, they won a couple of worlds. What, what do you think, Henry? Uh, the Astros are not my favorite. Well, I mean... Uh, I'm talking as a Yankee fan. But go, yes, I'm, and I'm a Red Sox fan. So, of course, uh, we have our manager uh, from them. Uh, uh, so, uh, you know, long story short, a G Capital ended up, uh, along with other lenders, owning the team. Uh, you know, did uh, you know the creditors ended up owning the, uh, that team? And uh, Gary Went got the assignment to basically run the Houston Astros and to sort of turn it around and make it uh, profitable uh, so that it could be sold and so they could get their money back. And you know, a little known fact that I don't think made it into even into the footnotes is that Gary Went actually went out and bought the trash cans that they used to uh, steal signs uh, 30 years later. Well, you know, he's always had an interest in, in baseball. Uh, so, uh, he said it was the most fun he's ever had in a single year. That's right. And uh, he turned it around and he made uh, money and made it, and G okay, got so, his money back. Right. So, 1995 ish, uh, GE Capital was contributing no less than 40%, if I remember correctly, to the company's earnings. It's an immense money machine. That, and, uh, uh, frankly, nobody but Jim Grant had focused on. Well, uh, that's not exactly true, but you're, you're kind of... Directionally uh, true. Yeah. I mean, the research analyst... Not in the latitude that you suggested. Mm -hmm. Well, basically, Jack uh, had had the re Wall Street research analysts eating out of the palm of his yes, hand, right. and they were mostly focused on the industrial side of the business. Yeah. Which was a formidable thing. Absolutely. Uh, I noticed... A world that, beater. Yeah. Uh, I noticed that uh, towards the end, you recite many of the achievements in patent uh, accumulation and in innovation of these industrial businesses with great admiration as well deservedly. Uh, I mean, in the same way that we would today with, you know, Apple or Google's achievements or some other company that we admire's yeah. achievements. What's different about, of course, about uh, GE as an industrial innovator was the attached uh, leverage financial institution, which came to be not so much attached to the industrial business as vice versa. Right, so um, 
remember talking, you were kind enough to put this in the bucket, talking with George David, who headed uh, UT United Technologies, and they were a competitor with GE and, I guess, aircraft engines and other such things. Um, but uh, there was a great admiration, indeed, I think a little bit of envy from Hartford uh, towards GE because uh, Jack would always make the numbers. But, but let's, let's finish with the, with the story of leverage and what it did. So, so 40% of the earnings from this leverage entity, and of course, what a corporate executive wants is more, right? So they continue to do more and more. And we now come to, uh, uh, let's fast forward uh, many years, it's come to 2006 and seven and eight, and uh, GE has uh, got a, a very, very large balance sheet, and they're funding, what, 15% of it with 30-day or 90-day commercial paper. So tell the audience what commercial paper is and why this might have been a problematic funding scheme. Well, first of all, they were the, the world's largest issuer of commercial paper, with something like $150 billion. Uh, and commercial paper is uh, unsecured, short-term uh, yeah, it's an IOU. IOU. Uh, it's basically an IOU that only, you know, the supposedly companies with the best credit rating can access. Well, so that's the irony of all of this. GE was triple A, triple A all the way. As, and as Jim Grant has said, it can't. There's no quadruple A. You know where I got that? Michael Milken. Wow. Well, there's that's a good source uh, of of knowledge on on high yield uh, mm -hmm. on the credit markets, uh, and so. You know, this was actually a revelation to me, to me, Jim. Uh, there were a number of revelations. I mean, you know, there was the early revelation, of course, that Thomas Edison's role in the creation of GE has been totally mythologized and it was way overstated. Yeah. He didn't want to be part of the creation of what became GE. Uh, an another uh, interesting factoid was that in 1893, the company almost went out of business because of the panic of 1893. They were over leveraged. You talked about Gerard Swope and the, the, the fortress balance sheet that GE created. That was because they almost went out of business in 1893. So they decided, oh, we're not going to do that anymore. Ironically, they forgot that they weren't going to do that anymore <laughs> uh, much later on. Uh, uh, and so what was a real revelation to me uh, as someone who, you know, wrote a book about the collapse of Bear Stearns and wrote a book about how GE, uh, uh, Goldman Sachs, avoided uh, the same fate that Lehman and Bear Stearns and Morgan Stanley and Merrill uh, suffered. Uh, I was not aware of how close GE Capital came to filing for bankruptcy. It actually prepared the papers twice had hired uh, Sullivan and Cromwell to, make, to prepare those papers and how Jeff Immelt, the CEO of GE, had to basically go hat in hand to the Treasury Secretary, Hank Paulson, and like tell him that, hey, Hank, we can't roll over our commercial paper. This was literally on the same day that Lehman filed for bankruptcy, September 15, 2008. He was in Hank Paulson's office telling him he couldn't roll over GE's commercial paper. And of course, if that were to happen, GE was going to file for bankruptcy. Uh, and then uh, obviously Hank reacted quickly. GE not being a bank was of course not part of the TARP and not part of TARP 1 or TARP 2 and not part of all of these uh, uh, lines of credit that the Fed had made available. So basically then uh, uh, Hank had Jeff go over and see Sheila Bear at the FDIC and plead the case for why Sheila Bear should allow GE capital to participate 
in these lines of credit that they were making available to other financial institutions and kind of made perfect sense. Why would anybody buy the debt or debt securities or bonds or commercial paper of GE if it weren't included in the lines of credit that were being made available to other financial institutions? Because one had an implicit, you know, guarantee of the federal government. And if GE wasn't participating in that, it wouldn't have that. And who would buy that? Maybe it's some exorbitantly high rate, but they pleaded their case. And, and Sheila Bear basically was forced by higher ups, as she told me, to uh, to let GE uh, into this uh, f- financing. Who might those ups have been? Well, and there aren't too many ups, but I'm sure uh, Hank Paulson had a role. I'm sure maybe uh, you know George W. Bush had a role. While GE wasn't a bank, it didn't have access to the Fed. It did get grouped into one important group of financials. If you remember in mid-2008, the uh, SEC briefly banned short selling of financial institutions like Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, and General Electric. Yeah, I think we remarked on the irony of a AAA credit hiding behind the SEC, not getting a share share sold short. God, my God. It wasn't wasn't, um, the the brightest moment for American capitalism, those meetings with Sheila Baer and with uh, the Treasury Secretary, I got to say. Well, I mean, uh, I mean, it depends on how you, 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 know, you want to look at it. If you believe in sort of a Darwinian view of capitalism, that, then there should have been no TARP and no bailouts and, and all of those firms who just imploded under their own weight and GE would have been one of them. Uh, you know, the, there's certainly a view of the world that that's what should have happened. And out of that, you know, new green shoots of healthier, smarter, wiser financial institutions humbler humbler would have arisen uh or the alternative approach was to save what we have or most of what we have and in that category uh was of course ge but you know the revelation to me was that ge had even come anywhere near that close was even in that conversation that that jeff immelt had actually had to go to the treasury secretary or to sheila bear and i get bear stearns i get goldman sachs i get morgan stanley I mean, those are, you know, financial institutions. But And the, the dirty secret was that, you know, by that point, GE was making about 50% of its profit from GE Capital. And it wasn't so much, of course, the asset, the asset side of the balance sheet, uh, which is what happened, you know, with Bayer and Lehman and others. It was, the, it was the liability. It was that they couldn't continue to finance themselves uh, in the short-term credit markets. And they didn't have deposits, so they didn't have any other cheap way of this, financing this, this themselves. This wasn't a you know, natural disaster that uh, for which you had four hours notice by the National Weather Service. This was a long, rumbling and trending uh, credit problem that became visible to some of us early in the 2000s. And one of the more striking details of this particular phase of GE's history in your fine book, Bill, is the account of how... Uh, uh, Jeff Immelt would uh, very defensively produce uh, a bill of clean health for what McKinsey warranting uh, the financial strength of the uh, of the company and of its uh, leveraged uh, GE Capital subsidiary. Uh, but they had plenty of opportunity to 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 anticipate and to. In fact, I, I I'm going to go to the video tape here. And there's so many impressive people that um, I came across in your pages. Um, and there's one of them who, uh, Michael Praley, P-R-A-L-L-E, who's head of GE's real estate business and who seemed to be a far-sighted 
and uh, intelligent and, and perceptive person who uh, wanted to uh, uh, sell real estate while it could be sold and thereby to liquefy the balance sheet of the capital subsidiary. But uh, uh-uh. No. Yeah. This was in 2007 uh, as uh, the real estate market was uh, hitting its uh, peak um, and cap rates were at their lowest level. And of course, Michael Prawley, who ran that business and had also run GE's equity uh, investment business, basically uh, there was a meeting held and uh, he was very outspoken about saying, this is the time we need to sell. I've we're just still 51%, he'd say, right? I've got Goldman Sachs uh, ready to go. They believe there's all these buyers for these assets or this part of this business. And, you know, to your point, uh, you know, Jeff Immelt um, waved around the McKinsey report saying, oh, no, the real estate uh, business is going to continue to outperform as it has for, you know, no end in sight to the great uh, things that are going to happen in uh, commercial uh, real estate. And therefore, I'm not selling this thing, uh, Michael. What are you talking about? Yeah. What, so at one point you compare uh, Jack Wells and Jeff Immelt in their managerial styles and, and their managerial uh, mindset. And uh, the thing that to me was so striking is that uh, uh, Jeff Immelt seems to have been preoccupied with what other people thought, what the street thought, what the stock price was, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas uh, I think uh, Jack uh, Welsh comes across as rather more self-confident and certainly more self-confident in that he welcomed debate and dispute, and he would look to risk, would he not? Uh, he'd say, well, as it works, that's great, but what's the downside? So given uh, Jack Welsh's interest in risk and his openness to debate and discussion, why didn't, uh, under his watch, GE get a hold, get a better hold on capital, GE capital, and, and rein it in and realize that it could ultimately be its undoing? Uh, under Jack's reign. Well, Jack was having a love affair with GE Capital. As he told me, it's easier to make money from money than it is to make money, you know, bending metal and making a jet engine. So Jack was really into arbitraging GE's AAA credit rating, borrowing really cheaply and lending really expensively. Back when I was there, Jim, financing leverage buyouts, providing capital for leverage buyouts. That was 18 what? That was in the the aughts, the 18 aughts, uh, just as electricity was coming <laughs> into existence. Uh, uh, clients, customers of G Capital, people that, you know, who were trying to buy company with companies with our money would complain that our financing was very expensive. You know, not only was our rate expensive, but uh, our spread over LIBOR was expensive. Our spread over treasuries was expensive. We also wanted warrants, you know, Right out of you know the Mike Milken playbook, right? right? So we would they would, we would get this complaint all the time. Oh, you're much more expensive than the street. Okay, and and my I didn't you know I just sort of had to absorb those uh, slings and arrows back then. But in writing this book, what of course I realized, and of course I realized over time, is that we were actually like Milken, the only ones who were actually getting rewarded for the risks yes. we were taking. We were actually pricing the product properly, right? You know, Mike, I get, you know, from time to time would put the warrants in his own pocket. You know, G Capital, we kept them in the corporate entity and Jack would sell them when, you know, the time was ripe or he thought he could make money uh, to, you know, in part to achieve the earnings 
uh, promises that he had told Wall Street analysts. But so he, he loved that business. Okay. And as you point out, he had very smart people running it. Gary went, knew what he was doing. Okay, and then when he didn't get along with Gary Went, and Gary Went embarrassed him because of the business of his very high-profile divorce, uh, he brought in Dennis Naden, who had worked with Gary and also was very smart. Yeah, well, Jeff Immelt didn't get along with Dennis Naden and you know got rid of him, uh, which was a big mistake that that Jeff Immelt made. So I don't know whether you know it was a question of, I mean, again, I mean, what business? I think one of the biggest mistakes Jeff made was getting rid of GE Capital, uh, you know, when he couldn't, didn't like the fact that it was a SIFI uh, anymore after 2008, a, you know, systemically important financial institution regulated by the Fed. It was costing GE Capital all this money. Its, its arbitrage opportunity had been, you know, competed away to some extent. But, I mean, you know this better than anybody. I mean, what industry has made more money or as much as any other industry, if not more, uh, after 2008 than any other industry was well, the financial services industry. I mean, la last year, J.P. Morgan made $48 billion of net income, and the year before that, they made $40 billion. So there was a lot of money sloshing around that GE Capital could have taken more than its fair share of if Jeff Immelt had just stayed the course, but he didn't. He decided, I don't like this business anymore. I'm getting out of it. To what extent do you think it was Jeff's fault versus the institution and culture at GE? And I, I ask that because when you look at kind of the other people who Jack was vetting for CEO role, Nardelli went on to head Home Depot and led to kind of disastrous results at Home Depot, too. The, the, the lieutenants that Jack had selected, none of them really were shining stars subsequent to Jack's retirement. <clears throat> and of course, this is, uh, you know, one of the questions that I really uh, pushed Jack on is how he could possibly have sort of blown the succession uh, responsibility. I think if you look at Jim McNerney, who uh, was at 3M and then went on to Boeing as the CEO, I mean, you can debate whether he was good at Boeing or not. Uh, I think he at least understood GE Capital. He had worked at GE Capital. So unlike Nardelli and Immelt, uh, uh, McNerney, one of the finalists, three finalists, really one of the two, I don't even think Nardelli was really in the running at the end. Uh, he would have uh, at least understood GE Capital in a way that Jeff Immelt did not. Jeff Immelt never really got his mind around what was going on at GE Capital and the risks. Forgetting, you know, he had probably understood it on a superficial level, but I'm talking about the, you know, understanding it, you know, the inherent risks that were in that business. You know, John Flannery worked at GE Capital for many years. I mean, I don't, you know, he was too young then. I mean, Dave Calhoun uh, uh, would have understood it. Uh, you know, he had Dave Cody. Uh, who went on to Honeywell. Dave Cody understood, finance, worked in the finance function at GE. So Jack obviously blew it in the end by choosing Jeff Immelt, and he admitted that to me early and often uh, in very colorful language. Uh, but, you know, had Jeff been having, had he not, you know, fired Dennis Naden, had he had somebody in place who really understood what was going at GE Capital, had he listened to Jim Grant, had he listened to Bill Gross, uh, had he listened to, uh, uh, you know, any number of other people who warned him about what was going on at GE Capital, uh, he, you know, he could have stanched this. He could have prevented it. He could have pivoted. He could have been more nimble. Uh, but I don't think he really understood it. Part of the reason I wanted to ask that was two or three years ago, the Wall Street Journal had a couple of in-depth articles after it became obvious that GE was a debacle. And one of the things that stood out to me was 
the people interviewed said when there was a problem in one of GE's divisions, even on the industrial side, people would hide those problems and try to paper over them because if you admitted them to, you know, whoever's the CEO at the time, you could lose your job and your division would lose resources. And it seemed like there was a cultural issue kind of underlying all of this. And I remember back when Alan Mulally became CEO of Ford right before the financial crisis, he sat down with his lieutenants and said, you guys are telling me everything's good. We're losing billions of dollars. Clearly something's wrong. I want to help you guys. I'm not going to punish you for admitting problems. Somebody please tell me what's wrong. And it took a long time to break down that insular culture of hiding problems because you don't want to be the, the tall, you know, tr uh, grass that gets mowed down. Yeah, I don't really think that's what was going on, on it. I mean, there I think uh, there was a culture, uh, at least under Jack, of dissenting views, bringing him bad news, and having him absorb it and deal with it. Jeff, however, did not like to get bad news. I mean, you saw we talked about Michael Prawley. You know, Michael Prawley says, let's sell the commercial real estate business. In 2007, Jeff says no. Michael Prawley essentially gets fired soon thereafter. Uh, other dissenters, uh, you know, also were kind of uh, uh, either shunted aside or, uh, or, or fired. So, so that, I don't think it was necessarily cultural, you know, embedded. I think it was more Jeff Immelt who did not uh, like to hear bad news and did not like to have people who dissented with his, you know, big picture views of where GE should be uh, going. And, uh, you know, I think that created uh, a, a major uh, problem in, you know, losing good people. And I think another problem uh, was this uh, pension uh, plan that GE had, the supplemental pension plan, uh, which when you got to be a certain age, uh, the, G the CEO in his discretion uh, could award you a supplemental pension plan. And then they were like golden handcuffs because it, since it was done in the uh, discretion of the CEO, uh, you know, you were not rewarded to uh, dissent or complain or to raise red flags. You were uh, rewarded to go along. I mean, one thing Dave Calhoun told me is that he left GE before he got to that age, which I think it was, you know, 50, 51 or 52, whatever it was, uh, uh, so that he would not feel that he had these golden handcuffs that would prevent him from speaking up and delivering bad news if he saw it. It, by taking himself out of the GE uh, corporate CEO race, and I'm sure he would have been a fine candidate to either succeed Jeff Immelt or, uh, or, or something else, uh, he didn't want to be part of that supplemental pension situation, which would have paid him a lot of money, but also effectively muzzled him. Yeah, I, I was so struck by that discussion, that supplemental pension business that... Uh, it struck me as um, uh, as a great way to ossify an organization, to freeze it in place. It was, um, and we're talking about a lot of money. Like Jeff Immelt's supplemental pension is five five million a year. Right. Yeah, it's quite extraordinary. Yeah, I mean for life, by the way, for life. Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. Others who you know four million a year for life. Who know? I, I know people who work who've left GE who who get four million a year in their supplemental pension from GE. And now work for other big financial institutions, making millions more, in addition to the four million that they're getting from GE. Reminds me of uh, how uh, King George III would dole out pensions to his favorite courtiers. Uh, and, and by the way, and, and then just to finish this thought, now there's some grumbling 
going on that as GE is beginning to split itself up into three pieces and it just now it's down to two, you know, it was this, you know, 90 or a hundred billion dollar mini conglomerate, right? The three pieces. Yeah. Now, now those pension liabilities are going with much smaller companies. So they have their pensions are now at risk. So they, they perhaps ought to have a, a, a luncheon meeting with Chicago firemen just to find out what it's like. Yeah. Um, so how much uh, blame should attach to the rating agencies for persisting in rating GE uh, AAA name um, as it uh, very visibly became less than that and as the market correctly identified as much less than AAA? Um, did you, you, I don't recall your, in the notes you having spoken to S&P or Moody's. Did you? Uh, no, but I have that great story from the treasurer, Jim Bont, of, of GE uh, at the time, who early on in Jeff Immelt's tenure took him down to see the rating agencies. They flew together on the GE helicopter. Uh, and basically, Jim Bont's message to Jeff Immelt was, look, the rating agencies are on to what's going on here. They, this was in the early 2000s. Uh, they're very concerned. They're, they're thinking they're going to downgrade you, us, because of the risks at G Capital uh, and the amount of debt that's growing. Uh, and so I want to warn you that that's what this meeting is going to be about, Jeff. And Jeff was like extremely dismissive. No, they wouldn't dare downgrade us. Uh, you know, I don't agree that that's uh, remotely on the table. And of course, they got to the meeting and that was what the rating agencies wanted to talk about. But you know, whether GE, you know, strong armed them into not downgrading them uh, is uh, certainly a possibility or they thought better of it. You know, we all know the wholesale mistakes that they made in the years leading up to the financial crisis. I think this was probably part and parcel of that. But uh, uh, frankly, after uh, and then, of course, then then they did downgrade. Now, I didn't uh, you know, after getting that a great story from Jim Bunt and him telling me how he kept warning Jeff Immelt and uh, and Jeff Immelt saying that he never, you know, and that there were these letters that the rating agencies had sent that, that Jeff Immelt says that he never uh, was aware of. And uh, Jim Bunt was saying that's ridiculous. And Dennis Naden telling me that's ridiculous, that, of course, they were aware that the rating agencies were thinking of downgrading them. And then Jeff didn't changes anything about the capital structure. Um, finally, or semi-finally, let's talk about earnings management and the miraculous progression of beats that GE put up over the course of basically 20 years. There was no quarter in which it did not beat the estimate by a two or three cents a share. Once um, I was on uh, CNBC and Jack Welch was on at the same time. And I had just finished reading a certain passage in From the Gut, Jack Welch's uh, tell much, not, if not all. Uh, Which came out on 9-11, by the way. Ah, so that's, that's one author. And he was actually sitting with Matt Lauer on the Today Show. He had just finished his publicity segment with Matt Lauer on the Today Show when all of the commotions Okay, started. so I'm going to say this is one author who has one excuse why his book didn't sell worth a damn. It actually was a bestseller. Oh, okay, his number so. one bestseller. Yeah, that's what I meant to say. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, so um, Jack and I yeah. are, uh, are on uh, CNBC. On CR, right? Okay. So I say, um, um, uh, Jack, in this, uh, in your own book, you say that uh, uh, that uh, you came up short earnings one year and you called up everybody and all these great guys at GE were going to kick in a couple of cents a share and we can do this, we can 
move this over here and push this up a quarter. And that's how I made the number. I said, isn't that, uh, isn't that a, a confession of earnings manipulation? We had previously quoted some guy, uh, some, guy some very fine analyst at Forbes saying that uh, the probability of earnings beating the consensus by two cents a share over the course of 20 years is like 0.0, out to you know many digits to the right of the decimal point. Okay, so question for you is, was GE guilty of earnings manipulation all these years as the SEC charged in 2009 and to which they settled for a mere $50 million? Or was Jack Welch correct and just a matter of pulling levers and it's perfectly, you know, Yeah, so of course, this is uh, one of the great uh, unanswered questions in the whole saga. Uh, Obviously, right from the start, when I sat down with Jack over many conversations before he died, uh, you know, he he was prepared for this question. I didn't even ask him. He just knew that this was going to come up. And so he was a guilty conscience. uh, He must have had a guilty conscience. uh, And but he was prepared with ammunition you know, showing me why I shouldn't fall for this earnings manipulation uh, narrative. Um, and here's what, what I would say after giving it a great deal of thought and, and, you know, researching it and investigating it and talking to a lot of people and maybe being part of the problem myself, having worked at G Capital Financing Leverage Buyouts, uh, was, you know, Jack recognized, he was the CEO of GE, which he rec- he understood was, you know, half a huge financial institution, unregulated, right? Uh, Not a depository institution that got its money from the capital markets and and half an industrial business. So he took as sacrosanct his responsibility uh, if he told these research analysts who were basically wrapped around his finger because they didn't understand the, the financial side of the business that he was going to make a certain amount of money per quarter, he felt duty bound to make that. Okay, so he can see maybe two months in that the industrial side of the business isn't gonna produce what he thought it was gonna produce. And on the financial side of the business, he can also see that, you know, that's just a cash machine. You know, borrowing short, lending long, borrowing for pennies and picking up dollars in front of the uh, the steamroller or whatever it no, is. No, it's picking up pennies in front of the steamroller. <laughs> yeah, whatever it is. <laughs> Uh, so he knew that he had, you know, whatever, by the end, $650 billion of assets, which included all those things that I talked about before, the warrants, the, the loans, the buildings, the, you know, mobile homes, you know, and I spent a year working for the chief credit officer at G Capital. And so I got to see all of the 18 businesses that they had or whatever, 20, and and all the different ways they were making money and all the different crazy assets they had. All of which is to say that Jack felt a responsibility, and I tend to agree with him. If he's going to tell Wall Street analysts he's going to make you know a dollar seventy three a share, well, by God, he's going to do it. And the way he's going to do it is, you know, two months into the quarter, he's going to say, "All right, we're falling short on the industrial side. We got all these assets on the financial side. Let's sell some of those warrants. Let's sell the Patrick Media warrants. Let's sell the you know cable warrants that we have." And you know. That's going to be thirty million dollars. Let's that's thirty million dollars we're putting into this quarter, and and he was also, uh, you know, this was a little uh, sketchier to, to my my mind. You know, if they sold a company, they you know made sure they took losses to offset any gains that they had, uh, which sort of minimized. But that's just 
tax planning that you know, is legal and let, lets you people know, it do. It reminds me of a little bit, reminds me of a story that you also told so well here. It's about, this was a price fixing scandal of the 1950s. And um, you know, that was just so egregious. Well, I, I liked I liked the way they rationalized it within GE. Somebody said, kind of crystallizing the dilemma of the well-intended businessman that doesn't think it's so very wrong. Said, "Quote or semi, <clears throat> there ought to be a quotation mark that is approximately approximate quotation mark. All right. It may be illegal, but it's not unethical." <laughs> <laughs> You talked to Joe Jett for this book? No, he would not talk to me, but he, he did write a book. I had a lot, so believe tell, it or not, tell, things were cut out of tell, this Tell book. the audience about uh, Joe, Joe Jett was the uh, rogue trader at uh, Kidder Peabody, right? then a GE property. Correct. And he had actually started at GE Plastics uh, before <laughs> he went to Harvard Business School. And then he started at GE. He was one of the few black uh, employees at GE actually uh at g and at g plastics and then he went to harvard business school and then he thought okay well i'm now going to wall street i'm going to kidder right and then ge buys kidder so then he's back at ge again that was pretty i thought that was pretty funny and then he was this rogue trader who you know cost ge hundreds of millions of dollars at kidder uh and basically led to the decision to sell it yeah well but when jack saw that that was happening in one particular quarter that kidder was not working out anywhere near like he thought he was like scrambling around yeah. you know to his fellow you know executives and saying who can who can come up with something and he writes this in the book and basically talk about an admission of, exactly and, yeah. and, and he, he was so proud of the esprit de corps exactly. exhibited by, by his uh, fellow ge executives and so you know i guess you could look at that as manipulation of earnings or you could just say hey look we got a problem. We got a hole. We got to fill it. Well, how can we do that? Or you can look at it and say, what a bunch of great guys at GE. Oh, it's, you, know, you know, it may be illegal, but it's not on there. <laughs> well, this has been merely fabulous. So I, I can't uh, uh, endorse uh, more effusively Power Failure by William D. Cohen, which is uh, at your bookstore if they can, you know, if they can uh, bestir themselves to stock the shelves. Uh, so thank you for being with us, Bill. Thank, I, thank uh, you yeah, for having me. Bill is uh, the author of um, all sorts of other things. For example, this uh, very fine book on the uh, Duke lacrosse scandal. Uh, these guys were, poor guys were framed. Uh, but uh, this is uh, more straight down the, uh, the Bill Cohen uh, alley of uh, finance and uh, drama. So it's, uh, it comes, uh, as I say, with a, uh, an author-installed page-turning device. So um, thank you, Henry. Thank you, Evan. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you. We'll talk soon. This is Jim Grant on behalf of The Current Yield for Grant's Interest Rate Observer.